This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to The Takeout. However you find this show, our early adopters on podcast platforms, thank you. On more than 70 radio stations around this great country, thanks for listening. Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124, also great to have you with us. And on CBS CBS News Streaming, that's the new name, CBS News Streaming, welcome to my office here at the Bureau, Washington, D.C. We come to you from this location more than once. We switch it around, different locations now, same office. And let me tell you, folks, one of the great privileges of working for CBS and having this show is being able to talk to some of the best correspondents who do journalism work around the world. And we're going to do that this week because we're going to talk to one of the best and bravest foreign correspondents working in journalism globally. Her name is Holly Williams. Holly has been in Kiev in Ukraine for several days, putting together reports for Evening News, CBS Mornings. And if you're thinking about what's going on in Ukraine, and you should be because we could be on the verge of a full-scale war that would have dramatic consequences, not just for Europe, but for the United States and geopolitics writ large. So Holly Williams joins us from her hotel room in Kiev. Holly, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thanks for having me, Major. So first thing I want to do, Holly, tell the audience who your crew is because they're out there with you. They're doing the hard work every day. Please give them their due. Oh, that's a fantastic question. I'm so happy you asked that. I love talking about that. I'm here with the A-Team, I'm here with um, uh, Justine Redman, who is a brilliant producer who I've worked with for nearly 10 years now. And I'm with uh, a cameraman that I've worked with over and over again in recent years, Abdi Kadani. Um, they are fantastic. And as you know, TV is a team sport. You don't get anything done without your team. You don't get anything done without your team. And I'm glad they're there. I'm glad they're with you. Just, Holly, start telling us what does it feel like in the capital of Ukraine right now? You know, what's always interesting to me is explaining the kind of places that I go, which include not just Ukraine, but Syria and Iraq and Yemen, is how normal life is. You know, even when there's an active war going on when you are, that people are still, people still got to eat. You know, that if there's a possibility, people still send their kids to school. They've got to earn a living. They've got to grow food. You know, they've got to get petrol in their car or gas in their car, as you would say in the U.S. 
Um, and, you know, if you walk down the street here in Kiev, it d- just feels normal. People are doing that. People are going to school. People are going to work. People are shopping. People are eating out. This is a fantastic city, by the way. I'm not encouraging you to come here right now because the State Department has warned against it. But if this situation blows over and we all hope that it, that it will, then you should come to Ukraine. It's um, it's a wonderful country. So it feels very normal. But when you talk to people, they're definitely worried. They're definitely concerned that there's going to be an invasion. People have different threat perceptions. Some people think it's more likely um, than others. But you don't you don't feel it walking down the street. And I think, you know, there's a couple of things there. One is that um, the Ukrainian government is clearly very deliberately telling people not to panic. They know that if there is panic, panic buying or people kind of running for the hills, fleeing the country, abandoning their jobs, that would be terrible for the economy and for society as a whole. And then I think that the other thing is people here have been living with Russian aggression for so long now. They're kind of used to living with a threat hanging over them because you go back to 2014, you know, Russia's already invaded Ukraine. Yep. Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. It seized control of the Crimean Peninsula. Absolutely illegal under, under international law, according to the US and its allies. And then also since then, Russia has been backing um, armed separatists in the country's east. And that's an ongoing conflict. You know, the Ukrainian government says over 14,000 people um, have died. And when you talk to people in Kiev, they know people who were soldiers on the front line. A lot of them know people who have died. So, you know, they're not panicking. Um, but they're worried. And that's why I use the terminology full-scale war, because as you correctly pointed out, Holly, and it's really important context, there is a war going on in the eastern part of Ukraine. And for our audience's benefit, that is the part of Ukraine that has more Russian speakers. I understand historically it feels, if not aligned with Russia, more sympathetic to Russia, and that has given it, uh, given Russia what it regards as some thin legitimacy to invade or have its presence there? Right. So certainly there are people in that part of the country who feel much closer to Russia, whether it's because they're, they're Russian speakers, it's their first language, or they're, you know, they would consider themselves to be ethnically Russian. And things started in 2014, Aris, when people started sort of rising up. We were there. We saw people taking over you know, town halls taking over the government in towns and cities um, in in um, in eastern Ukraine, and Russia has backed uh, those armed separatists. And those armed separatists now control kind of a corner of eastern Ukraine, the front line there, the trenches, kind of slice through villages and slice their way through farmland in that part of the country. Um, and the U.S. government says that it's Russia that's actually in control of those armed separatists and, and that that war that they're fighting. And you've been there, have you not? So we've spent quite a lot of time going back and forth to the front line um, in eastern Ukraine. And in fact, last year, we went on a really unusual trip. We went there with the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, one of the most unusual trips I've ever done in my life. And I, like, I've done some weird things in this job. I, I'm sure you have as well, Major. Um, days that leave you thinking, what, what just happened? What, what did I just witness? So we um, went out to the front line. Um, we, you know, we flew in a plane and then we flew in a helicopter and um, President Zelensky wanted to go and spend time with the troops. And we understand that he does that the whole time. That's a really, really common thing. He was not putting on a show for us. We get to the front line and he's walking, we're sort of walking through these villages that are completely smashed up. There's no one living there anymore. They've been destroyed by this war. People have been killed or they fled. And the trenches, they look like something out of World War One. 
you know, the kind of TV shows and wars that you've seen. And this was in early summer last year, so it was muddy, you know. It was really, really muddy. We're kind of sliding through the mud with the president of Ukraine, who's in military fatigues. Um, and we're going to the front line. And then we tried to interview him at this at this post. Um, and he um, <laughs> he told me to be quiet because we were too close to the Russians. And he said, you know, stop screaming. They're going to hear you. And then interestingly, also on that day, the reason it was such a weird day is we also I also ended up having breakfast with the president and his mom and dad in their apartment. It was me, the president's chief of staff, and his mum and dad in this little old Soviet-style apartment uh, at, I guess, 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. I didn't. We thought he was just having breakfast with his parents, right. and then one of his guys came and lifted me up from outside and took me in and up this elevator into the parents' apartment, and they broke open the, the Georgian brandy and the, the fancy chocolates. Just one of, like, what I... Is that, is, w- w- was that the sum total of the menu for breakfast? Uh, brandy and chocolates? Fish was delicious. It was all cooked by the president's mom. Um, it was fish and lard and it was really yummy. But I couldn't eat much because I was too blown away by the fact that I was sitting there having in this tiny little Soviet style kitchen right. with the president of Ukraine and his parents. Right. And the trenches, what? Why trenches? Uh, it sounds like the movie set from 1918 or something. Why trenches in that part of the country? Well, they're dug in. It's pretty flat land. If you're in a trench, then you have cover. Right. Uh, and and also the positions don't change. Uh, and the, you know the front line doesn't move very much. It hasn't moved that much over the years. So that is like an analogy to World War One: entrenched forces seeking cover holding terrain but not advancing very much, a kind of uneasy, sniper-enforced military standoff. That's exactly right. Sniper fire. And we hear anecdotally, I can't confirm this, but anecdotally we hear from the Ukrainians that the Russians also sometimes, or the the Russian-backed separatists, I'm sorry, sometimes um, actually uh, fire landmines at them, Um, and which which I, I understand is illegal under international law. Fire landmines, so actually use them as projectiles, and then upon landing, they detonate. And they're very deadly. That's what we hear anecdotally. We haven't right. seen it happen. We haven't seen any video of it, but we've heard it from the Ukrainian side. All right, we're going to go to break now. Uh, segment two of the take. I'm going to continue our conversation with the outstanding CBS News foreign correspondent Holly Williams, who's in Kiev in Ukraine. More on the atmosphere there, what people there fear. And what the reality is day to day. I'm Major Garrett, segment two of The Takeout, coming up in just one moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Holly Williams is our special guest. The Focus, Ukraine. She's in Kiev, the capital. Holly, um, when you walk around the capital city, um, you said before there is a degree of normality. People are still 
making their way through their daily lives, do you get a chance to talk to people? And when you do, how do you how do you assess their level of concern? Has it been rising the last month or is it still kind of this, well, we live with this kind of reality of pressure and threats from Russia anyway, and it doesn't move very much up and down the emotional scale? How is how is it actually? I think anecdotally, ever since the US started talking more about, you know, we're concerned about an invasion, we're concerned this might happen, I'd say anecdotally, people are more concerned that that might happen. And for instance, you know, we were at, um, our, our hotel is right next door to this amazing historic monastery yeah. here in Kiev. People have been worshipping there for over 900 years. It was actually demolished um, during the Soviet period. Because remember, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. It was demolished and then it was rebuilt when Ukraine became independent in the 1990s. And, you know, we were talking to people there this morning. Um, you know, they said that they were praying for peace. And we talked to one man, like a 60-year-old man, who kind of said, you know, I still think it's more likely they won't invade, but if they invade, I'm ready to take up arms. And then we spoke to this elderly lady who said, I, you know, I, I, I want God to talk some sense into the Russians. So I think, you know, sort of anecdotally, people are more aware that there might be some kind of invasion or smaller attack, because, of course, there's a lot of speculation about what exactly Russia could do if it decides to attack Ukraine. Um, but 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 people here have been living with Russian aggression for so long. And there's that sense that, you know, we've dealt with this. We've right. dealt with this for many years. We, we know how this works. Basic questions. What do store shelves look like? Oh, um, they, they don't seem to be running short at all. There doesn't, as far as I'm aware, there is no panic buying. People are not running for their heels. People are not flying out of the country. Interestingly, there are now bomb shelters in Kyiv. Um, so they've set, they've set up new ones or they've renovated old ones. But that's not the last two weeks. That's something that's been going on, as I understand it, for kind of two or three years. And interestingly, we were inside one earlier this month and uh, we didn't know what we were going to see when we went in there. It's like underneath this kind of municipal building. We went downstairs and they were telling us, you know, there's room here for 350 people. So it's for this building and maybe people in the area as well. Um, and, you know, there are benches and there's water supply and there are some nice toilets that they've redone. And they said, actually, we've renovated this one. And then I looked around and I saw this phone system at the other end of the shelter that was an old school phone, you know, a proper phone with a, <laughs> like when, when I was little you know, with the thing that young people don't know how to use. Right. And I said, hang on, is this a Cold War bomb shelter? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was built right. when they thought America might hit them, when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And then they took us into another room with this amazing antique from the Cold War, but it still works. It's a filtration system. It's electrical, but it, it's manual. You can switch it to manual if the electricity goes off. Um, and, and, you know, then you can take the 350 people can take it in turns. So, you know, I mean, people have those things under their apartment buildings. They're thinking about that as a possibility. Right. Traffic patterns, normal, they appear to you? Seem to be yep. very normal. Right. Yeah. What's the news coverage like day to day? Um, you know, it's interesting. It's definitely um, in the Ukrainian news. They're definitely reporting on this. What we do hear from our Russian colleagues is that um, in Russia, it's not the top of the news programs. This, this, is, this is not a huge story in Russia. This is sort of, if anything, being played down. Right. And to what degree do you interact on a regular basis with government officials? And how often are they communicating to the people in Ukraine about their mindset? Um, they're definitely talking to the people of Ukraine. So this week, 
for instance, to just give you a taste of the kind of flavour of it, the defence minister came out and said and told Ukrainians, you know, don't panic, sleep well, he said, and he told them there was no need to pack their bags. So definitely urging calm. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's no need for this. Um, and actually, Ukrainian officials tend to make themselves available generally to foreign journalists. So, you know, that, that trip I told you about with with President Zelensky. That's pretty amazing access. And do you feel any restrictions or sense of limitations as a working reporter, either in the capital or any other part of the country? No. I mean, there are places that you have to get permissions for, but but that's normal. Um, we, we certainly don't have any restrictions working here in Kiev, but for instance, if you go to the front line, you obviously have to get permission. That's standard. If we want to film something with the US military, we also need to get their permission. Right. We can't just turn up in the war zone. And we filmed up on the border um, last week or last weekend. So we went up to this really interesting area, um, so just north of Kiev, very close to Chernobyl, actually. Um, and it's where Belarus, you know, Belarus, Russia and, um, and Ukraine and... Um, so we went and sort of filmed on that border and obviously you know, we know there's the Russian build-up in Russia, but there's also these planned military exercises in Belarus um, and Russia's been moving huge amounts of military hardware um, into Belarus, missile systems, fighter jets. And then we visited this little village. It's about one and a half miles from that border to talk with the locals about, um, about you know, what, what they thought and what they were planning to do. So one of the things that nations sometimes do if they fear the worst is they build field hospitals. Those who remember the run-up to the first Gulf War in 1991 will remember the United States in Landstuhl in Germany building this enormous tented field hospital alongside runways there, anticipating those from the front lines coming there for medical treatment. Is there anything that you've seen that suggests that kind of preparation in Ukraine? I haven't seen that. I mean, certainly when I've been out to the, the front lines in the past, they have medical facilities there. You'd expect that. They've been fighting a war for nearly eight years now. I haven't seen that, but I am heading back out east again soon. Um, and that's certainly the kind of thing that we would keep an eye out for. So one thing I want to talk to you about, Holly, because I think for many in my audience, their ears are still getting accustomed to this different pronunciation of the capital of Ukraine. I grew up hearing chicken Kiev. I grew up hearing Kiev, 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 Kiev. Then in 2014, when there is this invasion in Crimea, the Obama White House goes to a very particular pronunciation, Kiev. And I asked, what is that about? And they said, well, that's the Ukrainian preferred pronunciation. Kiev is the Russian preferred pronunciation. Walk the audience through that if you'd be so kind. So I think it's the same as we no longer call, you know, Mumbai. We don't call it Bombay anymore. That was the kind of colonial pronunciation of Mumbai. We no longer call um, Beijing Peking um, because that's offensive to Chinese people. That's not the name of their city. Um, and I think it's the same here in Ukraine. Kiev, as I understand it, was the Russian pronunciation and it's um, Kiev in Ukrainian. Although uh, the Ukrainians we work with may have a slight a difference of opinion with the White House. Because I think that they say it, I'm not a Ukrainian speaker, but they say Kiev, not Kiev. Right. But it's different. And that's and it, and it lands in an American ear differently because we just spent a lot of time hearing it the other way. And as you say, we've all grown up eating chicken Kiev. <laughs> right. And this speaks to a deeper issue, which I want to get your thoughts on. Uh, there is in the Russian psyche, in the Russian culture, an attachment to Ukraine, which is part of this story, is it not? Well... That's interesting, isn't it? So what, what is it that Russia really wants here? Uh, that's the big question, right? right. Why is Russia doing this? 
you know, um, you know, Russia says that um, despite the fact that it's moved 100,000 troops to the border, um, that it's the real victim, that it's threatened by US and NATO aggression, um, and that it needs security guarantees. Security guarantees that, for the most part, clearly the US and NATO are, are, are very um, unwilling to give, um, and which Russia presumably knew or at least now knows. So what is Russia's bottom line here? I think a lot of people think what's really going on here is that Vladimir Putin, the people who work with him, think that Ukraine should come back into Russia's orbit. They don't want a Ukraine that's kind of partnered with the West. Right. They want Ukraine Ukraine in its sphere of influence. Yes. You know, some people would say they want an outright puppet state. Some people that just want a Ukraine that's kind of closely tethered to Moscow, that when it makes decisions, thinks about what Vladimir Putin wants before they think about what people in Washington, D.C. want, that they take Moscow's interests um, into account. And the question there is really why? Why is that? Why is that so important to Vladimir Putin? Um, And, you know, I think there are a few different possibilities here. One is that, um, well, first of all, most people think it's connected with, you know, the Soviet Union. Okay, this is a guy who grew up in the Soviet Union. This is a guy who was a KGB agent, um, and he seems to want to recreate that, recreate some kind of Soviet empire or Russian empire. And Holly, I'm going to hold you on that one thought there because i got to jump to break. On the other side of the break, we'll get the other part of that answer about what Russia's psyche and culture about Ukraine may or may not be. Holly Williams is our special guest. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout in just one moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout, continuing our conversation with the brilliant and brave Holly Williams in Kiev in Ukraine. Holly, continue on with that answer about what is or what might be either the Russian motive or the historical backdrop that it uses to create some manner of either intellectual or diplomatic justification for this menacing of Ukraine. So I think it's pretty clear that Vladimir Putin wants to bring Ukraine back into Russia's orbit and away from the West. What, why is that? You know, is it because of um, an attachment to sort of recreating the Soviet empire or a Russian empire? Is it purely emotional? You know, Putin's written about um, this idea that Ukrainians are actually Russian, that they're not a separate people. Or is it really much more strategic? Is it about you know, needing a buffer zone or not wanting to have, you know, NATO countries that that close to Russia? Or is it to do with energy supplies? Because, you know, you know, natural gas pipelines run through Ukraine. Or is it, you know, a combination 
of all of those things that kind of motivate Vladimir Putin to want to bring Ukraine back into the fold. So one thing I want to ask you, because you've been there so many times, at least a dozen, maybe more, you've lost count because you've been there so many times. Here's kind of a basic, simple question. Based on your reporting instincts, does it feel different this time? Yeah, it feels different. But part of that is what we're hearing coming out of D.C. and, you know, and and NATO countries. Um, uh, And also, of course, it feels different because there are roughly 100,000 Russian troops perched perched on the border. Um, Of course, it feels different. But the whole thing is here. You can't know what's going to happen. And I said, that's also part of why people are not panicking here. Because what do you do? You don't know what Russia is going to do. Russia says it has no plans to invade. You know, would Russia uh, stage a full-blown invasion? Huge loss of life, both to Ukrainians and potentially to Russians. Is Russia going to do some kind of smaller incursion? Um, you know, there's this, there's this sort of scenario that's been discussed by the US and Ukraine where they the Russians stage an incident um, as a pretext for a smaller incursion, maybe using Russian troops, maybe using people who are not wearing um, Russian military uniforms, or could they do something like a cyber attack, which sounds like it's not so bad, um, but it could be bad. I mean, suspected Russian hackers have already taken down the parts of the power grid here. Um, and, you know, it's the middle of winter here. If you attack critical infrastructure and you take out water and gas and electricity, that could be devastating. So I think that sense of you you don't know what's going to happen here. Um, is and is sort of plays into the fear. Sure. So uh, let me talk to you about a couple of things that have been said here in Washington and how they've landed there. Minor incursion. Those words came out of President Biden's mouth at a press conference. How did they land in Ukraine? I think for for Ukrainians, you know, any incursion is a major incursion. It's their country, um, and so um, you know they, they don't. <laughs> They don't necessarily differentiate so much, although the consequences in terms of how deadly it would be could be radically different between a full-blown invasion and a minor incursion. For them, it's still an attack on their sovereignty. And as I watched the president go through that, it struck me that what he was, quite for him and the White House, because they had to spend almost a day and a half trying to clean this up, letting slip what they were wargaming internally. What are the various things that Russia might do and how they would have to respond and what the bandwidth of NATO response in terms of sanctions and other measures might be in relation to something that is different than a full-blown invasion. It sounded to me as like he was saying out loud what they're talking about in private, not just among NATO allies, but with the Ukrainians themselves. But well, let me ask you a question then, Major, because do you think that that was letting something sleep or do you think that that might be deliberate? (sighs) That's possibilities run in both directions for sure. And it might have been deliberate in the sense that there might have been something strategic like we're thinking along these lines. We have a various number of contingency plans because we assume based on our intelligence gathering of Russia, everyone has eyes on one another. We're going to sort of let you know we have gradations, too, and you have gradations. Uh, However, The political reaction here was this was not helpful because it was some manner, if not a green light, of a yellow light to Putin. And that's the last thing, particularly the president's rivals, wanted him to do politically in this fraught moment. So uh, here's what I wonder. And when I say I wonder, I mean I wonder. I don't know. Um, The the U.S. 
uh, I suspect there's a kind of deliberate thing going on here where the US is saying there's no, this is not being quietly back channeled with the Russians. This is very public. Right. We, you may say that you're not going to invade, but, but we think you are going to invade because you are sitting there on the border. And also maybe, maybe you won't launch a full blown incursion, but maybe what you'll do is, and you know, and then spelling out scenarios. This is both the US and Ukraine saying maybe, maybe Vladimir Putin, you're going to stage an incident as a pretext for going in. Maybe you're going to carry out cyber attacks and take down um, critical infrastructure. And actually, the Ukrainians have been really specific on the incident. They speculated that maybe the Russians would stage an incident at an ammonia factory um, as a pretext um, for moving in. And I wonder whether part of that is that the um, it's generally thought that uh, part of Vladimir Putin's kind of MO is that he likes the element of surprise. Yes. We interviewed General H.R. McMaster the other day, mm-hmm. you know, former national security advisor, and he said that's that's what he does. He likes to disrupt. And I wonder, this is very speculative, whether what the U.S. and its partners are trying to do is to deny him that ability to disrupt. Right. I mean, there is a... We know everything you might do. There is a mentality going on of everyone is watching. This is not a side deal anymore. This is a full-blown global story. And everyone is involved and everyone's watching. And the it seems to me one of the conversations the Biden administration is having, and it may be right, it may be wrong about this, but that elevation is in its own way a psychic deterrent to Putin. Right. And I think part of that is for sure saying if you do this, there are going to be really big costs with sanctions, with actually bolstering NATO forces, not, not going in the opposite direction. But I also wonder there's that element of... Um, you know, you're not going to take us by surprise. You're not going to disrupt anything here, which I think is something that, that Vladimir Putin does like to do. So one of the other top uh, diplomats speaking on behalf of the Biden administration, Wendy Sherman, this week said, we think there will be a very lot. There's a likelihood. I don't know the exact quote, but the essence of it was there could be an invasion in two weeks, basically. And the Ukrainians said, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, no. Hold on. Does that look to you like a disconnect or a continuation of this conversation, this pattern that you've detected there in a ratcheted up alarmist rhetoric from the White House and Washington in order to keep the spotlight on Putin? It's so difficult to say, isn't it, whether the U.S. and Ukraine are taking um, different approaches in how to talk about this or whether they really just have different threat assessments. They have different intelligence and they're looking at those troops over the border and where they have their weapons um, and what preparations they're making. And they, and they come to different conclusions about what they're ready to do and when they might be ready to do it. So are people buying weapons? Can people buy weapons in Ukraine? And do you sense a people... Like, well, you mentioned this a couple of times. Well, if they come, I'm going to defend myself. My understanding is that a lot of Ukrainians have weapons and that um, and, and know how to use them um, and um, that hunting is very popular here. I have not been out hunting in Ukraine, but that is my understanding from talking to Ukrainians. And a lot of Ukrainians, um, you know, volunteers took up arms in, in 2014 and went out east to fight. Um, because the Ukrainian military was a lot less, um, w- was not so well equipped back then. And there was this sort of movement to go and, to go and help out there. Um, we, uh, this weekend, are planning to go and meet with some weekend warriors um, from Kyiv who are planning for just that scenario. Weekend warriors, meaning they're not official, but they would be part of a stood-up uh, m- militia, I guess. 
Yeah. Um, they're, as I understand it, they're professional people from Kiev who know how to shoot a gun. Um, and they're getting ready for an invasion. They're getting ready for an invasion. Just, just in case. Wow. Um, and uh, that will be somewhere near the capital? That's my understanding. Very good. We're going to continue our conversation with Holly Williams, who is in Kiev. How long have you been there, Holly? When, when did you arrive? A week. A week. Been there a week. This is and feels like in every way front lines of something that could be dreadful, life-changing for Europe and much of the global economy, because we'll get to that in a minute. What happens in Ukraine could have a tremendous impact on the global economy. More of our conversation in, from Kiev with Holly Williams when we come back for segment four of The Takeout. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. It's an honor and pleasure of mine to talk to my colleague, Holly Williams. Holly, I don't think you and I have ever met in person, have we? I don't think we have. No. I was in the DC Bureau once right. and you weren't there. <laughs> I wasn't there. I was probably on a plane somewhere. But You're it's... probably doing your job. You're probably reporting. <laughs> It's a great pleasure to talk to you. I'm so glad you're sharing all of this experiential, journalistic, and historical knowledge with our audience. Uh, I mentioned as we went to break, because if you read any of the European press, one of the things that they're concerned about is, look, if there is an invasion, this will create enormous tensions, economic and otherwise, not just in Ukraine, but throughout Europe. Help my audience understand some of the basics of that. So one of the biggest issues here is energy. In Europe, and that particularly centers on Germany and to a lesser extent France. Germany in particular has become extremely dependent on Russia for its energy needs and could be about to become even more dependent. They've built this new pipeline, Nord Stream 2. It's been built, it's ready to go, but it hasn't been switched on yet. It needs a kind of final um, authorization. And the fear is that that kind of undermines NATO's solidarity so that, you know, Germany seems. Um, not a little bit less reluctant to kind of toe the NATO line. So, you know, they face a dilemma. They're, they're anxious about Russian aggression. They don't want Russia to invade Ukraine. On the other hand, they're fearful that Putin will kind of weaponize natural gas and switch the gas on and uh, switch the gas off. And then, and, and then, you know, what do they do? But it's also part of, well, arguably part of Putin's calculations. Part of the reason that he wants to reassert control in Ukraine is that so many other pipelines run through this country. Right. And on the map, not only is Ukraine close to Russia, was part of the former Soviet Union, would be part of a sphere of influence after the end of the world of World War II. Joseph Stalin called it a sort of cordon sanitaire, a kind of place around Russia, mother Russia, that would prevent future European invasions. And this is not saying anything on behalf of Vladimir Putin, but the Russian psyche and the Russian culture has a very definite attitude about European invasions into Russia. There's a long history of that. That's not counterfactual. That's real. 
Russia's had plenty of Europeans come marauding into Russia. And they lost between 24 and 26 million people, civilians and military forces, in World War II. By comparison, the United States lost about 650,000. In the Russian psyche, this idea of a territorial defense is not just a notion. It's built from their point of view in their deep lived experience in Europe. That is not to say there is anything legitimate about what's going on in Ukraine, but it is part of the psyche. Am I not? I'm, I'm correct about that, right? I think you're absolutely right, but I think you're also right to draw a distinction. On the one hand, it's absolutely right to try and understand what might be Russia's insecurities, right? After after all, our in, our insecure our insecurities are often not about um, actually a rational analysis of what the other side's going to do, but a, a profound understanding of our own weaknesses, and then thinking about how we might be attacked. And you're right. I think with Russia, that goes back um, to the Second World War. I think it's also you know, right to acknowledge that the West could have played things differently at the end of the Cold War, could have been more understanding about what Russia was going through, could have been more understanding about the idea that whilst for some Russians, this was a celebration of their newfound freedoms, for others, there was a sense of humiliation and of empire loss. So you're absolutely right. Of course, the world should try and understand what Russia is thinking, should try and see things from Russia's perspective. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that Ukraine should be sacrificed to that. Right. It doesn't mean that the people of Ukraine who seem to be very clear that they want a sovereign, independent country, they, they, they love their young democracy, um, and that, you know, that they want to join NATO, um, that they want European standards of governance. That's what we hear time and time again here. You know, we do have problems with corruption, but we want to do something about it. We want to have the same kind of governance that they have in Europe. It doesn't mean just because we understand where Russia is coming from, that Ukraine should be sacrificed to that. Right. And let me clean up something that I didn't make clear early on, which we need to. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Okay. It's not. not. And why is that important? Because if you're a member of NATO, under Article 5, if there is any act of violence that crosses your borders and compromises your sovereignty, every other signatory to NATO will come to your common defense. It is a common defense pact. That's what NATO is. And Ukraine is not a member. Russia's made it abundantly clear. It wants that off the table permanently. The United States is not willing to offer that concession because it says, as a sovereign nation, you can, Ukraine can make up its own mind. But that's an important part of this entire puzzle. True? Right. And I think it's no accident that Russian acts of aggression have occurred in Ukraine. That is not a NATO country. So NATO countries don't have to come to its rescue, to its defence. The Russians committed aggression in Georgia, in the Caucasus. Once again, it's not a NATO country. So other, you know, NATO countries don't have to come to its defence. Not that the US and other NATO countries are not supporting Ukraine, right? The US is giving Ukraine extraordinary amount of military support. Um, the US is saying we'll hit Russia with sanctions. Um, more sanctions if you invade. But the U.S. has also ruled out, for now at least, sending combat troops to Ukraine. That's also, by the way, why Ukraine wants to join NATO. It wants that threat to be directed at Russia. If you touch us, all of these other countries are going to hit you. Right. And I wonder if this is uh, true. It seems to me it's true, but Holly, I'd like your perspective on it, that the fact is, and this is an important part of this conversation, Moscow will always care more about Ukraine than London, Paris, and Berlin will? Well, that may be true, but um, I would say that Ukraine is pretty much the top of the agenda for other NATO countries at the moment, um, or for NATO countries at the moment, because they're looking at a possible conflict. But sure, 
Ukraine is right next door to Russia and uh, Vladimir Putin seems to care very profoundly about it. Is there a conversation there that you've detected, Holly, that falls into the worst case, best case scenario? I think any any case is bad, right? If you're sitting here in, in Kyiv, a full-blown invasion, that's deadly and disastrous. A smaller incursion is also really bad because it sets yet another precedent for Russia kind of taking a bite out of a neighboring country. And it's also part of your sovereignty. Um, and then, as I said, a cyber attack could be absolutely, absolutely devastating here. It could cost lives. Cyber attacks can cost lives. So, I, I you know, the, and then there's the other scenario, right, which is where Vladimir Putin doesn't do anything. You know, there's this idea that he's painted in, into a corner and he has to act to kind of, you know, protect his honor and it would look very bad at home if he doesn't act. That's one school of thought. I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, Vladimir Putin could just keep those troops on the border, right? Maybe add some more troops, maybe add some more hardware um, and kind of keep on ratcheting up the pressure in this seemingly Cold War style game of game of brinkmanship. I don't think any of those are great for Ukraine. They don't sound like it. Even the best case sounds pretty grim. Uh, but the lack of coverage, as you've heard in Russia, tells me that this is not top of mind there, which might be Putin's way of creating for himself a little bit of maneuver room in terms of how whatever he decides to do might have some flexibility, at least in terms of what the public has heard or read about Ukraine. Holly Williams, it's been a great, great pleasure to talk to you. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those watching on CBS News streaming and our podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you next week. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett here at the home office at the Washington, D.C. Bureau. We've switched the camera angles around a little bit, so it's a small office, but we make it look different every now and again. Holly Williams is our special guest. If you've been listening, you know why she is our special guest this week, because, yes, I know in Washington, D.C., Associate Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer said he's going to retire at the end of this term. That's a big story. But the biggest global story, bar none, is Ukraine. And Holly Williams is in Kiev, and she's been giving us her brilliant and brave perspective on that all throughout. Holly, this is the lighter part of our conversation, so I want you to ease up a little bit um, because we have three th three threshold questions we've asked everyone on this show. We're in our sixth year of this show, so we've got a huge catalog of brilliant answers. So... In whatever order you want to take these questions, take them. One of the most or the most influential book you've read in your life. All-time favorite movie or one of your all-time favorite movies. And if you are, as you often are, on a very long flight to another really important, sometimes perilous assignment, and you really want to get into some very good music that puts you in a great headspace, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Mm. Okay, well, I would say that 
to date, the most influential movie for me has been Frozen because I have a daughter and I think I've watched it 600 times and I know all the songs. And it's a, actually, it's a very good movie. It's a great movie. There's a reason why it is so popular. It is a reason why it's not just the music. It's a phenomenal story. Exactly. Um, and apart from the music on Frozen, I'm a big uh, classical music fan. I, nothing that I... There's not a particular piece uh, or composer I would I would um, single out, but I but I I love listening to classical music and books. Um, well, I'm a big Jane Austen fan. Great. And I think that she wasn't just writing about um, about love and mm-hmm. romance and marriage. She was writing about um, strategy and power. Absolutely. Personal power. And how it's That's exercised, it. and how it's uh, it takes on a cultural force all of its own. That's that's exactly it. Yeah. So uh, on assignment like this, uh, you are essentially working round the clock, are you not? Yes, we are, and um, well, you I'm, you are too when you're out on reporting trips. But what I would say is the time zone makes it really tricky here because we're seven hours ahead of the East Coast. So you get up really early here to tr- maybe try and do some news gathering and then put together a piece for CBS Mornings and then we're live for CBS Mornings at 2 p.m. local time and then maybe you do a few lives um, for, um, you know, for CBS News, our, you know, our streaming service and then maybe do a podcast with Major Garrett um, <laughs> or some stuff for our Australian affiliate and then you start writing your piece uh, for the CBS Evening News. So so you, it's oftentimes three hours sleep that, that you get a night and you just have to uh, I, I'm- with it. I know the drill. I know it well. And we respect and honor all the work you're doing and your team. Again, uh, one more time. Who's with you? Justine Redman, the most amazing producer, and Abdi, Khan, Abdi Kadani, a very talented cameraman. Excellent. Um, tell my audience a little bit about this president of Ukraine. He's kind of different in terms of political figures, not only there, but world, uh, worldwide. Yeah, he's kind of different. Um, he was. Um, <laughs> he played the president of Ukraine in a fictional comedic television series. Um, and it's funny if you watch it in Ukraine, I've watched a little of it. Um, and the idea was that he was elected and that he was, um, he was fighting corruption. Um, and, um, and then off the back of that, he ran for office. And he was elected president and he's now a president who wants to do something about corruption. He's also Jewish and it's a, quite a small Jewish minority in this country. Um, and, and so that's, that's quite interesting as well. Is he popular? Um, his his approval ratings at the moment are not are not super high, um, uh, and we don't know actually. It's not clear if he if he will run again next time. What is the most common language you hear on the streets in Kiev? Uh, people speak Ukrainian and they want to speak Ukrainian, um, but most people here can speak Russian. Most people are bilingual. And uh, how common is it to hear or have people speak back to you in English? Oh, in Kiev. There is so much English spoken. It's incredibly impressive, actually. This is, a, as I said, this is a wonderful city um, uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, and, and one of them, if you come here as a foreigner, and you shouldn't come here right now, there's a State Department warning, but if you ever do come here, one of those wonderful things is that people are really, really wanting to communicate with you as a, as a foreign visitor. Any other European language you hear commonly in Kiev? No. Okay, you, so Russian, <laughs> Ukrainian, and English. That's it. Excellent. Holly Williams, you've got a ton of work to do. I can't thank you enough for carving out an hour of your time for our audience to give them a frontline perspective on one of the most important pressing stories in our world right now. All our best to you and your team. Thanks so much for the time. 
And uh, thanks for the knowledge. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.